Hey guys, I'm Abigail Meller, and welcome back to Generation Invincible, a brand new podcast on public health, healthcare policy, and social justice issues by a millennial for millennials, and anyone else that cares about the health problems facing our nation. This past week, I received an email from Seth. Sup, Seth? In his words, he says that he agrees that healthcare should be a right, but unfortunately, it is not due to the fact that health is now a commodity. And being able to benefit from commodities prevents us from offering access to healthcare at reasonable prices for all ranges of socioeconomic statuses. He asks whether or not I see the U.S. reaching health equity through the free market economy, and that he doesn't see reform based on capitalism as a sustainable model for healthcare. This is a really interesting question, mostly in part due to the fact that the United States is currently trying to reform its healthcare system to move towards a model with proven success in creating health equity in other countries. As you know, this model is that of socialized medicine and a single-payer system, which in this case is the government. I've been struggling recently with the idea that, yes, socialized medicine is a sustainable solution for our healthcare system, but I've been wondering if there's a way for us to combine the aspects of the two conflicting ideologies, that is, socialized medicine and a model for healthcare based on capitalism. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that the free market is not a sustainable model for our healthcare system. Now, I'm not an economist, and as you know, this podcast is a combination of facts and my opinions. My opinion is that in order for health reform based on capitalism to be successful in bringing down the cost of healthcare, a level of empathy is required. And if we're looking at healthcare as a commodity and not a right that should be guaranteed to all citizens by law then there will always be a group that understandably thinks selfishly and only sees providing health care to all as a financial burden rather than a social responsibility. The reason that health care is not accessible to everyone, yes, is partly based on cost, but also a concept known as the social determinants of health, part of the main topic for today's podcast. What are social determinants of health? What is their impact on health disparities in the United States, particularly for the African-American population, And how does Jim Crow play into all of this? Y'all ready? Okay, okay, ladies, now let's get information, because I slay. Okay, ladies, now let's get information, because I slay. Cool to me, you got some coordination, because I slay. Slay trick, or you get eliminated. By the way, sorry I couldn't work in any from Lemonade, but I don't have $18 to pay for a visual album. But if you guys want to start a GoFundMe to pay for me to buy the Beyonce album, I'm just saying, I'm not going to stop you. Okay, so this past Friday, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe used his executive power to restore voting rights to more than 200,000 convicted felons. This is a big freaking deal, like jump for joy type. The action was aimed at reversing a section of the state's constitution from the Civil War aimed at disenfranchising African Americans. Before McAuliffe's order, felons, even if they had served their full time and finished parole or probation, were not allowed to vote. And now they are. A few other states have similar laws preventing felons from being able to vote. But if you think about how African Americans are disproportionately represented in our prison system, isn't it really hard to argue against the idea that laws like this intend to take away those rights? For many years, there has been a national discussion about how harsh sentencing policies, particularly for drugs, disproportionately affect African-American men, and now more recently, also women. According to the NAACP, 
African-Americans now constitute nearly 1 million of the total 2.3 million incarcerated population, and they are incarcerated at nearly six times the rate of whites. In a book called The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, which, by the way, is amazing and everyone should buy and read it, it's argued that, quote, we have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it, end quote. We all know that Jim Crow laws have been a thing of the past for decades. As a quick reminder, there were state and local laws enacted to enforce racial segregation in the South from 1890 all the way up until 1965. While the idea was that facilities for Blacks were supposed to be separate but equal, the conditions were inferior and underfunded compared to those for Whites. According to Alexander, what has changed since the end of Jim Crow is not the structure of U.S. society, but the language used to justify its activities. She argues that when people of color are disproportionately labeled as criminals, this directly results in all different types of legal discrimination in employment, housing, education, public benefits, voting rights, jury duty, etc., etc. And you know what all of these relate to as well? Health. There are five proven factors that contribute to a person's health status. These are known as the determinants of health. They are biology and genetics, individual behavior, social environment, physical environment, and access to health services. According to Healthy People 2020, social determinants of health are conditions in the environments in which people are born, live, learn, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. For example, we know that poverty limits access to healthy foods and safe neighborhoods and that education is a predictor of good health. And it isn't hard to see that there is sort of a domino effect going on when you are looking at the determinants of health. So a child is born into poverty and grows up in an unsafe neighborhood with little to eat, let alone something healthy, because his or her parents can't afford it. Accordingly, the state funds in that area are already limited, and it's just fact that impoverished areas have lower quality education. According to the Department of Education, more than 40% of low-income schools don't get a fair share of state and local funds. So, people who live in these types of situations, with high poverty rates and low education levels, are known as being part of a vulnerable population. Each of these factors contribute to poor health outcomes. And yes, a lot of this has to do with the fact that, like good education, access to quality health care is hard to come by. If you're wondering why these can relate to the disenfranchisement of African Americans in our country, you need not look farther than the plain numbers— Seriously, there are so many statistics that show negative health outcomes for African Americans in comparison to whites in the United States. To name a couple, adult obesity rates for African Americans are higher than those for whites in nearly every state of the nation. 37% of men and nearly 50% of women are obese. Also, asthma prevalence is highest among blacks. Black children have a 260% higher emergency department visit rate a 250% higher hospitalization rate, and a 500% higher death rate from asthma compared to white children. And there are so, so many more examples of these disparities. The disparity in chronic illness between blacks and whites persists across income levels and after adjusting for age. It can definitely be argued that poverty disproportionately affects African Americans. Statistically, African-American children are three times more likely to live in poverty than Caucasian children. But even as you increase the income levels of the groups you're looking at, 
there is still a staggering difference between the prevalence of chronic illness in blacks compared to whites. From senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway, don't lock up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who has stalled. The battle outside region. Okay, so there's this place in California called Richmond, which is a predominantly black city in the San Francisco Bay Area. Richmond used to be a prosperous town. During World War II, the Kaiser Shipyard ran 24 hours a day, drawing in workers of all ethnicities. But when the war ended, so did the prosperity. Jobs left. And while many white families took advantage of federally backed home loans to start fresh in a new area, blacks were left stuck in a ghost town due to discriminatory policies and practices that excluded people of color from these opportunities. Between 1934 and 1962, less than 2% of the $120 billion in government-backed home loans went to non-white households. In Northern California, around the same time period, out of 350,000 federally guaranteed new home loans, fewer than 100 went to Black families. Obviously, the discriminatory policies that cause these numbers are connected to Jim Crow laws, which weren't fully repealed until 1965. And health and social conditions have a positive correlation. As one goes up, so does the other. Hence the concept of social determinants of health. Like, duh. In the case of Richmond, California, both were going down. Studies have shown that living in an underprivileged neighborhood leads to a 50 to 80% increase in risk for heart disease, the number one cause of death in the United States. One major contributing factor is chronic stress. Citizens fear violence, worry about crappy schools and unpaid bills, living in insufficient housing or a polluted environment, not having good access to healthy food, reliable transportation, or safe public spaces. All of these have a very damaging effect on health. Community violence, which is common in underprivileged neighborhoods, is also a public health issue as it relates to chronic stress. In 2005, Richmond had one of the highest murder rates in the United States. Obviously, this is an issue at the surface because of the need to prevent premature death. But beyond that, people fear living their normal lives when their neighborhoods are unsafe. This can be brought even further to just the little everyday things to help decrease stress and prevent cardiovascular disease. For example, exercise. I gotta say, I'm currently thinking of five reasons why I shouldn't exercise today. But I'm fortunate enough to say that none of them are that going outside to run would potentially risk my life because of violence in my community. Interestingly enough, crime rates in the United States have generally remained similar to those of other Western countries, where incarceration rates are stable. However, the rate of incarceration in the United States has skyrocketed. Today, while the U.S. represents 5% of the world population, it contains 25% of the total number of prisoners in the world. The new Jim Crow argues that this is not related to the actual crime rate, but is connected to the war on drugs. When Reagan escalated the war on drugs in 1982, it was publicized as a response to a crack cocaine epidemic in black neighborhoods. However, this escalation began well before the crack cocaine was even introduced into black neighborhoods. Sounds fishy? Well, it is. There's a famous newspaper series by Pulitzer Prize winning Gary Webb called Dark Alliance, where he investigated the connections between the CIA crack cocaine in the predominantly African-American neighborhoods of South Los Angeles, 
and Nicaraguan Contra fighters. In 1998, the CIA admitted that during the 1980s, the Contra faction, covertly supported by the U.S. and Nicaragua, had been involved in smuggling cocaine into the U.S. and distributing it in U.S. cities. While the DEA initially tried to expose these illegal activities, their efforts were stopped by the Reagan administration. Ultimately, there was a boom of crack cocaine in Black neighborhoods in the 80s, and the expansion of the war on drugs, according to Michelle Alexander, made possible an unprecedented expansion of law enforcement activities in America's inner-city neighborhoods. To sum up this episode of Generation Invincible, Jim Crow laws may have been officially repealed, but they still exist in other ways to this day. And the social determinants of health combined with history draw a clear picture for health disparities of African Americans. To submit feedback about Generation Invincible, ask questions, make suggestions for future episodes, or if you just want someone to listen to what you have to say, email generationinvincible at gmail.com. Until next time, in the words of Helen Keller, Science may have found a cure for most evils, but it has found no remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings.